0: Thank you, musicians, so much. Well, Wednesday morning, uh, part of First Baptist Church is going to go to Scotland and England. And about this time next week, uh, that group will be in church in Durham Cathedral, which will be a, a great experience for the song service, which is late afternoon, which will match up with your morning service here. So we'll be praying for you as we worship there Uh, in that setting and look forward to coming back and telling you more about that. I'm sorry that it bumps up so close to Zambia trip, but I didn't plan all that. So so others did, and um, our hearts will still be with you here in Dublin. And uh, we look forward to being back in a couple of weeks, sharing our experience. I want to take a passage of scripture this morning and divide it and finish it tonight because it's long enough and our time this morning's short enough that we can't get through it. So what I want to do is introduce the first part of what Paul says here and conclude it in the evening service. If you want part two, you've got to come back for night service this evening. But I want us to consider the mind of Christ. Last Sunday morning, we considered presuppositions or attitudes or assumptions that we bring to life that, that bring together our core values. And we talked about how we get those core values most people get their core values just as uh, Schaeffer said by uh, being around people, like children catch the measles, he said. But you have a, a state of mind, an attitude, a way of thinking, and it determines everything else about you. And so in this morning's passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 6, Paul's going to talk more about that subject, how you think, and how you arrive at the thinking you think like. What brings you to that point, to those conclusions, to those life assumptions? And it's a really big deal. It really is. As we concluded last Sunday morning, I want to carry that forward into our thinking this morning. You need, you really need, just like me, you need your heart to be immersed in God's Word, the Bible. Uh, Guided by the truth that God has revealed to us that we might be guided toward his plan for us, his gospel, his purpose for our lives, and how you think about those things really, really is important because uh, if you just wait for your your values to just accidentally happen, you're going to be in big trouble. And so I want to invite you to pursue, most of you already are, but to continue to pursue a deliberate strategy for your mind lining up with the thinking of Jesus Christ. So, we want to look this morning and tonight at having the mind of Christ. Chapter 2, verse 6. As we wade into this, uh, Paul writes and he says, Yet we do not speak wisdom among those, yet we do speak the wisdom among those who are mature. Uh, The word mature there is related to our uh, word group like telescope or things that are down the road or things that are advanced. Uh, Telescope helps you look into. Way off. Uh, Paul talks here about maturity. And he's saying the immature and the unbelieving world don't get it. They don't understand a lot of things that they need to understand about God and God's purpose and God's will. He says, But we speak wisdom to those who are either mature or their heart's desire is to be mature in Christ. May that be so for everybody that's here this morning that we're. We're something better than we were last year, and we're all on a pilgrimage in this life, not just in heaven someday, but in this life, advancing towards spiritual maturity, where we know the heart of God, where we know the Bible, where we pursue God's will. He says, A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away, they're temporary their so-called wisdom is uh, not enduring it doesn't hold up it doesn't hold up under the test of eternity amazing grace we sing about being in heaven 10,000 years and we can bring to every issue of life how will we see this 10,000 years from now looking back should shape what's important to us and the choices we make I read from Francis Schaeffer, and we're really not gonna start having a Schaeffer devotional every week, but this book was handy, and as I thought about this subject, uh, in about two weeks, our group going to England is gonna find itself in Westminster Abbey. A number of you have been there on different trips. Uh, It is sort of the national church that along with St. Paul's, the national church of the British world. And you go through the front door, and through the nave, which is the biggest chamber, the most church-like place where they line up chairs and you, ha- you could have church in there. Uh, but you, you come up through the nave and buried in the floor is the, in the most prominent location, appropriately so, as far as I'm concerned, is the tomb of David Livingston, the great missionary hero. But as you go across Livingston and you look over to the left is this uh, tomb and sort of shrine to Sir Isaac Newton, the great scientist. Uh, a few feet over from that buried with with very little fanfare over in the side aisle is the tomb of Charles Darwin. And Darwin was buried there against his wishes, but at the wishes of the queen uh, who insisted that he be buried in the abbey. Uh, But here in the nave, as you're looking forward, the choir is back beyond this little partition, but over to the left is the tomb and the shrine to Sir Isaac Newton. And Francis Schaeffer writes about Isaac Newton the scientist. He says, In his latter years, Newton wrote more about the Bible than about science, though little was published. Humanists, that's folks operating sort of with a secular mindset, humanists have said that they wish he had spent all of his time on his science. They think he wasted the hours he expended on biblical study. But they really are a bit blind when they say this. As Whitehead and Oppenheimer stressed, if Newton and others had not had a biblical base, they would have had no base for their science at all. That is not to say that one must agree with all of Newton's speculations on either metaphysics or doctrine. But the point is that Newton's intense interest in the Bible came out of his view that the same God who had created the universe had given people truth. Uh, in the Bible, and his view was that the Bible contained the same sort of truth as could be learned from the study of the universe. Newton and these other scientists would have been astonished at a science obsessed with how the universe functions, but professionally failing to ask the question, why? Why is it so? Who ordered this orderly universe? Who makes it work? Who keeps it from unraveling? This brilliant man, Sir Isaac Newton, who loves science, loved God more. And he says we can come to science and search for truth knowing that it's there because this orderly universe was designed and sustained by our creator God. Now you contrast that with Charles Darwin who's buried just a few feet over there people read Darwin and begin to doubt the existence of God people read Isaac Newton and said isn't God incredible what he made and how he designed it and how it holds together isn't God awesome that's the contrast between the wisdom of this age and this world and the eternal wisdom of God that he gives to us through his word what a contrast what a comparison And Paul says, uh, we are speaking to the mature, to the people who get it, to the people who understand spiritual things. We speak of a wisdom not like the rulers of this age. In Zambia, I was having a meal uh, with uh, a couple of the other teachers that had gone over from America. One of them was a young guy from up in Indiana, who lives not too far from Chicago, and I was a student once upon a time in Chicago, and we started talking about the Field Museum, and some of the, the fascinating things that are there in that Natural History Museum that's one of the best in the country, uh, but some of the foolish things that are there, and I, I said, yeah, I remember going there as a student, and going down in the basement, and there was an exhibit to Cro-Magnon Man, and it depicted Cro-Magnon exactly how he looked, the lumpy head, and, and all the stuff, and the the fires going, and Uh, Mrs. Cro-Magnon's cooking back there, something on the campfire, and and it depicts the the whole thing. Like they've got it all, just like he took a picture of Cro-Magnon, man, snuck up on him at his campsite and took a picture. And it's all there in this elaborate display. Like they just got, they know it all. And then over in the corner, a little card, about a three by five card says, uh, if you would like another depiction of Cro-Magnon, go to the fourth floor. And you could go to the fourth floor of the Field Museum and see Cro-Magnon in an entirely different understanding. And you have to draw the conclusion these guys are not as smart as they would like you to think they are. They've got two different versions of this speculative stuff. And Newton says, no, no, no. There is a God of order and we must understand that the air we breathe he gave to us the cells that make up our bodies, all that holds it together is a God deal. And Paul says, we come to you encouraging you to think rightly about why you're even here in the first place, and to think rightly about how your life came into existence and what sustains it and where it's going someday when the inevitable comes. Not like the rulers of this age, Paul says, who are, by the way, Passing away. He's not just talking about dying. Everybody's going to die unless Jesus comes and interrupts your circumstances. But when he talks about passing away, he means all their lives and all that they've invested in will be shown to be vain and foolish. The godlessness of it all, of the godless philosophies, will prove to be so empty. He says, But we speak God's wisdom and a mystery new testament mystery is like a a disclosure or revelation we speak god's wisdom in a mystery the hidden wisdom which god predestined before the ages to our glory now we're not going to get into arminianism and calvinism and all that in terms of personal salvation that's not the main point he's making here paul's saying before time existed before god spoke genesis 1 into existence He had a plan for you to be and to be informed and to be aware and to be grateful and to be responsive to the will of God. He set in motion thousands of years ago a plan for your life. And Paul says this wisdom that we talk about when we write these epistles and when we come to you and we preach at Corinth and wherever else, we're declaring God's incredible wisdom that he planned for you a long, long time ago, before your parents' parents were born and even thousands of years before that. God had a plan for your head, for your thinking, for who you are on the inside so that that value system might reflect his glory and his character and all of his attributes. Peter says, be holy because I am holy, says the Lord. You're supposed to be not God. You'll never be God. Don't buy that lie. But you can be godly if your mind is immersed in the things of God. It says the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would have not have crucified the Lord of glory. They didn't understand. Now, I know, and you have to be theologically very careful here, because I know Jesus came on purpose into the world to die for our sins. And what one person does here or there was not going to change that. God had a deliberate purpose, and we understand that in New Testament theology. But he says, just on the human plane, if Pilate and the Sanhedrin and Caiaphas And Annas and all those who put Jesus on trial, if they could have understood what our New Testament shows to us, it has said, you can crucify him, but I will not. I'm not going to be a part of that. Now, they would have rejoiced in their sins being covered by his atonement, by his death, by the finished work of the cross. But their heart wouldn't have been in it. They would not have rejoiced in the death of Jesus. So Paul draws back on that illustration. He says, rulers of this age, don't expect them to to think the way they're supposed to. Don't expect them to connect all the dots, as we say too often. Don't expect them to, to really comprehend the great things of God. If the rulers of this age thought the way they should, they would have been with Jesus instead of against him. Don't expect everybody in local government today or national government or people or influential people around the world don't expect them to think like you would think in your Sunday school class at First Baptist Church on any given Sunday morning. They don't see it the same way. But Paul is saying it doesn't matter if they think differently, it doesn't matter if they outnumber you 101. Cling to the wisdom that comes from on high. Let that surround and shape and mold your core values because everything is at stake with that. Verse 9, Paul says, and he quotes at great length here from the Old Testament, But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. God, as the four spiritual laws, law one, uh, for uh, those of you that have used that track or grew up in Campus Crusade years back, God loves you and offers a wonderful plan for your life. God has a plan for you. And Paul here, quoting from the Old Testament, says, God's prepared things your eyes never seen and your ears never heard that are too glorious for words. God has that in mind for you. But God wants that for you, and he wants you to want that for yourself. And you can want that for yourself this morning. You can desire that with all your being. Oh, God, help me not to be caught up in the world and fascinated by the toys of this life. Help me to yearn to know you and to make you known. That's what I want, Lord. I want to know what you've prepared for me. Not what I might prepare for myself on my most clever days or my most industrious days. Help me to find what you've prepared for me and help me to rejoice in that and find my heart in that, my real joy in that. May that be who I am, Lord. Paul writes, that's what God has prepared for you. For to us, he says, and we'll conclude with this verse and pick it up again tonight. For to us... God revealed them through the Spirit. That's capital S, the Holy Spirit. God's revealed these things through the Holy Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. The the Holy Spirit is part of deity. It's the third person of the triune God. So uh, the Holy Spirit is not... Less smart than God the Father. The Holy Spirit doesn't have to figure things out or anything. Don't get any false notion on that. That's not what Paul's saying. He's saying the Holy Spirit, which is the informing dimension to God in our lives, the Holy Spirit is in constant review of the facts. Not to learn the facts, but just to go over it and over it and over it. And when the Holy Spirit speaks to your spirit, It's in the overflow of the depths of the things of God. So uh, if you had access to that, it would be foolish uh, to not draw upon that access, not to experience that. He says, I want you to, to commit your hearts. Don't just join a church. I want you to commit your spirit to the things of God and walk with God. Enjoy God. Love the Lord. Love his truth be guided by his truth in everything that is your calling that's who you are our group headed to scotland and england Uh, when our trip is almost over uh, the next to the last day i think we will go down to canterbury Uh, and some of you read canterbury's tales i've never made it through that i'm not an english major or the son of an english major Uh, But you've heard of that, and it's uh, all kind of built around the cathedral. But the cathedral has an incredible church history. And our group will have opportunity to either learn about that for the first time or reflect on that. And everybody learns about Beckett and Beckett's shrine and why all those pilgrims went down there and why Chaucer talked about people going down there. Uh, But buried in the basement, there's another theologian who's way more important than Beckett. Uh, His name is Anselm and anselm wrote 900 and something years ago and he was the dominant english theologian of the middle ages uh, an amazing character and almost nobody knows about anselm uh, but he saved us from a lot of bad theology a long long time ago and he wrote uh, he, he, the ontological exi- re- ontological reason for the existence of god or tried to prove why god exists don't even don't even try to to read that. Uh, it's way out there. Uh, but he was a brilliant guy. But more importantly, he wrote about the atonement and why Jesus died and what that meant for us. He wrote a, a book or a work called Why God Became Man. Why did Jesus take on humanity? Why did he come into our world? He wrote on that to correct some erroneous theology of the day and kind of got the church, I don't know if you call it the evangelical church, but the, the people who really had a heart for God's word. He kind of got it on track and thinking rightly about that. But he's famous for uh, several quotes, and here's one of them. And it almost seems to be the opposite of what you'd expect from the guy who wrote those apologetic statements about the existence of God. But Anselm, uh, buried in this very non-prominent grave in the basement of Canterbury Cathedral, said, I do not seek to understand that I may believe Now, he spent a lot of his life trying to understand. But he says, I do not seek to understand that I may believe, but I believe that I may understand. For this I also believe that unless I believe, I will not understand. Now, did you follow that? I should have put that on the board. I'm sorry. (laughs) You can get that later. Let me try to paraphrase our buddy Anselm. He says, in all the world of human reasoning... I know that all the smartness of this world is not going to get me to where I need to be. At some point, I've got to trust God. I've got to commit to God. And here's what happens when I do, Anselm says. And this was his testimony, his experience. Once I commit to God, then it begins to make sense. And I do end up figuring out a lot of things. And I do understand the wonder of God. So he says, my first purpose is not to, to make God prove himself to me. Man, unless I know how every molecule in the universe works, I'm not joining that church. That's, he said, no, you've got to trust that this, there's enough obvious stuff there that there's a God that's a creator God. And, and you begin to look to him in faith and take out his word believe and just insert the word trust. And, and this I trust so that I, I might comprehend And it does work that way. It really does. I bear witness to that. I've had my phase of trying to to make somebody prove to me all the things of God. And then at some point you have to just say, God, just, just show me. And the spirit that Paul's writing about in this passage shapes and molds the heart of that person. And suddenly the lights come on. In theology or bibliology, you call it illumination. It's just like turning on the lights in here in the middle of the night. It's like, oh, Wow, there it is. I I see it. I understand it now. And Anselm says, if you're just trusting in the best wisdom, the best wisdom of the rulers of this age, of the best minds of this age, and that's all you've got, you're in trouble. And you're going to live out your days and die in spiritual confusion. He says, oh, that you might have a heart for the pursuit of the mind of Christ. And we'll talk about that tonight. But God wants you to understand what Jesus thinks and what Jesus would do in all your circumstances and how he feels about everything in your life. And then he wants you to not only be aware of the mind of Christ, but to yearn that the mind of Christ would guide your life. And that's what Paul's encouraging the Corinthians toward in this great letter. Well, I ask you to bow your heads and join me in prayer. Father, we're grateful that it's even possible to consider the the idea of having the mind of Christ. Lord, we confess that sometimes our thinking is so selfish and so sinful and so foolish and vain. Lord, help us to treasure the things that really matter and live for the things that really endure. Help us day by day to grow spiritually. Paul has talked about writing wisdom to the mature. Lord, we wanna be in that classroom. We wanna be recipients of that kind of wisdom. Guide us all to maturity, each of us in our individual lives, but collectively as a church, may this be a place where God's word is honored and sung about and preached about and taught in the classrooms that we might be closer and closer day by day to the very heart of God. We desire the mind of Christ. Make it so, Lord, we pray. Not because we deserve it, but because you desire it. And we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.